Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. My friend, welcome back to our podcast. I'm Matt Harris and Seton Tucker returning from a mini vacation. Are you okay? You're going to be able to make it through this? I'm, I will try my best. <laughs> you had some fun and got to clear your brain a little bit and you come back and so many things have happened. Yes, it seems like it's a big legal week, so it was a good time to bring John on and right. get some clarity. John Snyder is with us. Let's go through some of the things that have happened and then we'll uh, bring John in. Since our last podcast... Uh, Eric Bland, who was the is the man behind the Satterfield kids and their lawsuit as they try to find that missing four point five million. Is it something like that? Plus five hundred and five thousand. So it's over five million. I think it's four point three and five hundred yeah. something. Anyway, more money than I've ever seen. And then they ever saw. Yes. Yeah. Because they, they didn't saw see nothing. one dollar. Exactly. Uh, and originally he was going to depose Judge Mullen. We will talk to that in a second. And of course the Law firm of Alec is now distancing themselves very quickly from the money that is missing. They went on, they told their story now in a statement. It's PMPED. You will hear them referred to uh, in the conversation. They said they were unaware of Murdoch's scheme until Friday the 2nd. Now, that's the day before Alec claims to have been shot on a rural road. He says he hired a guy to make it look like suicide, etc. That's a whole nother, go back to that uh, episode to find out more. So the firm was trying to track down some unpaid fee to the firm and some case Murdoch was handling. And they go over and they look around on his desk. Well, yeah, yeah. It says in their, <laughs> in their, in their complaint right here, it says that they looked around on the desk and they see this check payable to... Alexander Murdoch Esquire, and not to PMPED. Um, and it was deposited into his personal account for Alex Murdoch and not PMPED. So his check is laying there. And they, they say, like, what, what's up with that? That's how they say they found out this whole issue. And that's the day that he eventually is forced out, steps down, whatever. Uh, the lawsuit goes on to say, this review showed numerous checks made payable to Forge or Forge Consulting LLC. Forge Consulting is actually a real company and they have worked with PMPED clients. And so you would assume the reason they used Forge because it's close enough to the real company that people would not really run a red flag up because of it. Fly under the radar. Yeah. Forge told PMPD that it had not worked with Murdoch on this case with the check they found, nor ever structured an attorney fee for him. So the law, conf- the law firm confronted Murdoch, and he, quote, admitted to converting monies owed to PMPD and its clients to his own personal use. The firm said it wanted his resignation right then. And the days later, PMPD said it notified Hampton County Sheriff's Office, South Carolina uh, Law Enforcement Division, which you'll hear later as SLED, which is State Law Enforcement Division. So if you hear SLED mentioned uh, later, that is why. The firm also told the South Carolina Supreme Court Office of Disciplinary Counsel. Now they're doing an investigation. Murdoch's law license has been suspended, as you know. PMPD has hired a forensic accounting firm to review all of Murdoch's financial activities. It has reimbursed clients as well, they say. The lawsuit indicated that PMPD does not know the extent of the money taken. And that's a big deal. They go on to say... It is anticipated that additional information may become known that could lead to more losses to PMPED 
as it protects its clients' interest. PMPD's lawsuit states that Murdoch was able to get away with this for years through a personal Bank of America account titled Alexander Murdoch DBA uh, slash Forge, which doesn't really exist. Uh, More than $3.5 million was sent by Fleming via Murdoch to Forge, according to documents. Fleming, of course, Corey Fleming. Well, and they also want to know, I thought saw this too, that they want to know whether he is going to make any money or he's hidden any money or he's going to be making any money from interviews or books or any other publicity. Which you wonder, well, I doubt it, who's going to sign him right now, but you never know. Uh, on October 6th, Fleming apologized, said it was all Murdoch for the Satterfield scheme. Gloria Satterfield fell down the steps to her death. There was supposedly a settlement. The kids didn't get any. Eric Bland, we've had on talking about this. And Fleming said, when it came to disperse the settlement funds, Mr. Fleming trusted his close friend and colleague to deal with him truthfully and honorably, only to be misled and deceived in one of the worst ways possible for a lawyer. Alec Murdoch lied to Mr. Fleming to steal client funds. Well, Bland says in response to it, his license being suspended, he says it was a very good day for the South Carolina bar, but he also says that Fleming is entitled to due process and to defend the charges that the disciplinary council may bring against him. And that's where we bring in the official legal analyst of the Murdoch Family Murders Impact of Influence podcast, a former DA and also a former defense attorney, John Snyder. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. This has been fun and it's amazing how far this podcast is getting. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, the It's very clear what's happening and has happened in the last few days is that everybody is distancing themselves from Alec as much as they can. PMPED, which is Alec's former law firm, has said, you know, we're out of there. We do nothing about it. He did this all on his own. Then you also have uh, Corey's uh, Fleming's uh a law practice also saying we knew nothing about this. Corey Fleming is saying we knew nothing about this. Everybody's like, this was a one man show. Now, just because you say that, and even though it may be true, if you are a law firm and one of the guys on the sign does something shady, potentially illegal, all that, can you just simply say, ah, we didn't know anything and you're off the hook? I assume there's more of a sense of liability there than just, okay, we didn't know. There is, there is, um, even though the, you know, everyone is, you know, running, running for the shores from the ship they're on the bar and even the legal standards are still going to hold them to some type of responsibility. Uh, especially when you have, you know, seven figure checks coming in and out of trust funds, um, you have, uh, you know, a law firm um, getting money on behalf of a particular partner. And then, you know, the rest of the partnership, if it's like any other law firm in America, they're sharing those proceeds from the, the income that comes in. And so the, the bar, um, almost every bar in the country will say you, you have a responsibility for where the money comes from and you have a responsibility to know. Uh, in, in federal law, they talk about a source of funds rule. So if you're, if you're a, an attorney and, you know, Carlos Escobar walks in and says, Hey, I just got this from selling 
20 kilos, I'm going to use this to pay your attorney's fees. The government takes a, a, a down, down view of that. And so lawyers have an obligation to, to know where the money that's coming into their firm is coming from. And they also have an obligation to know where it went. In other words, they also have to have an obligation to have like certain safeguards, right? That's right. So if you have, if you are in a multi-partnered firm, there should be an audit committee. There should be audits performed on the trust account. Um, now, now look, if, if Murdoch is what all of these complaints say he is, then he's kind of a criminal mastermind in some ways, ac- you know, according to these allegations where he's, you know, setting up an LLC that's in the same name as a reputable company. Uh, it's close enough that he can tell, you know, a clerk, right, you know, write the check to forge there. That's fine. Just they'll take it. And, you know, depending on how deep he is into the criminal enterprise, uh, it, it could be that they didn't know. Now, that doesn't that doesn't mean right. they don't have liability. It just means they may not have criminal liability. Exactly. So what are your thoughts, though? OK, so we know that PMPED has filed suit against Alec. Um, and we also know, I think this just happened yesterday, Fleming's law firm took his name off of their website. So Fleming is no longer just Moss Coon now. So I'm kind of wondering, A, what are your thoughts on the lawsuit filed against Alec by his former firm? And B, do you think that's coming along the way from Fleming's old law firm? I think I think the law firm has an obligation to immediately take down any auspices of him being being in practice. I think that they are probably examining what legal rights and remedies they have against him. Um, you know, it it is an established law firm in that part of South Carolina, and they've got a very good reputation. And so they may, you know, they may have no knowledge of any of the you know potential bad acts as it was just another personal injury case that that Fleming was handling and of which they they handled a lot of them. so it, this is kind of a unique situation where it, it's in the normal course of their business to have him settle lawsuits and so they wouldn't have any reason to have questioned this lawsuit um uh, at the outset, and it sounds like their right. their insurance carrier handled it the proper way as well. But do you think that Moss Coon is going to file suit against Fleming the same way that PMPED filed suit against Ellick? I, I think I think the insurance company will have to do that to recoup recoup their losses. Okay, um, let's go over to the the judge for a second, uh, Judge Mullen. Originally, Bland said, who, of course, is the attorney for Satterfield's trust uh, kids, that he was going to depose Judge Mullen. Then he came out in the Island Packet, the newspaper, and said the first reason that he was not going to depose her is because he got some questions answered. He doesn't need her. But then he also comments that uh, he was taking some heat from people in the legal profession who objected to him trying to take a deposition of a judge. And so that, okay, first question, let's go with the first thing, reason he says he's not doing it. What kind of information could he, he receive? Or he, like, I should backtrack a little bit because on the, the, the paperwork, 
Judge Mullen's name or what appears to be her name. We don't even know yet if it's her real writing or not. It's a real scribbled it scribbled. Thing. It was illegible. So he wanted her deposed. Then all of a sudden he says he's got enough information. And also he say people shouldn't depose a judge, people say. Explain what's going on there. So, um, the, so on that point, it's very likely that, that maybe Fleming, Westerbrook have come forward and said, this is, this is what happened. This is how it went down. It, it may even be that they said, well, Alex was going to take the, the order down to Judge Mullen to get signed. And, you know, maybe Judge Mullen spoke, but off the record and said, you know, I've never seen this sheet of paper in my life. That's not my signature. And it wouldn't be, yeah, that's, that's not how I would sign a document. So that would be, that would be kind of the, the, all the potential explanations for him not needing to have a sworn statement. At the same time, I think from a public point of view, you've made these allegations in a lawsuit. There's a public trust issue to want to know how the process goes and how things are handled in court cases. Um, so that so that's issue one. Then the issue two is uh, I, I was quote pressured from other people in the legal system not to do this, and we've we've talked about how you can um, not call a lawyer as witness in their own ca- in a case that they are handling, uh, and so a judge would be in kind of this super lawyer category of unless th- unless there is actual actionable evidence against the judge and you're ready to maybe even name them as a defendant in the lawsuit, it would be considered kind of verboten to call her as a witness or call her for a deposition. They just don't call judges. They just, yeah, just seem people went crazy about this in the media following the podcast pointed out that, Hey, in South Carolina, you, you can have, settlement agreements, you know, that, that kind of fall outside of the normal order of a lawsuit. And I actually, I took some time to look that up because I'm, yeah, I will, I will always, always be open and accountable if I'm, if I'm saying something that, that may not be factually accurate. And um, in a wrongful death suit, you do, the judge can sign off on an order, but there still has to be a petition filed with the court. Uh, to see why the judge should sign off on that order. So, you know, I, I'm going to kind of stand by my, these. something seems funny here because there's no lawsuit, there's no case file, uh, and then you have a signed order. So yeah. that's, I think that's where things are right now. So this is kind of just uh, falling into place. Some things have changed uh, with the banker that dealt with all the things that were going on with the Satterfields, Chad Westendorf. You saw something the night before we recorded this, which said what, Seaton? There was a stipulation of dismissal without prejudice as to Chad Westendorf only. So I kind of thought, let's ask John exactly what this means. You have a dismissal without prejudice filed on Monday, the 12th, where basically that means that right now we're going to drop our case against you, but we have up to a year to bring it back. On the 13th, there's a new filing that was made by Eric Bland uh, against Chad Westendorf. So he's named in this one, 
and that is being filed, where Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter, the attorneys for the Satterfield kids, lay out the details about the money Westendorf was supposed to oversee for their heirs, so he's not completely removed. He's removed from the one she talked about, but now there's a new one with his name on it. What's that about? So it may be that they have dropped him maybe in his individual role, but they're going to still maintain their action against him in his in his quote-unquote corporate role as executor or personal representative. And so they may say, hey, Chad, like it, it appears you didn't do anything wrong personally and you don't have any personal obligation, but you do have an obligation as a representative of the estate and that's what we're going to move forward on. So um, not seeing the filing that, that was, you know, to be filed today, um, it, it, it may be, uh, it may be that it's against him in his like official role as the, um, as the personal representative. Yes. So that there's still, we still got to figure out how the heck did that not get to the Satterfields? That is where that, that is the, the million dollar question, right? I found something in this 13 page emergency hearing uh, paperwork that was filed that I want to ask you quickly about when in April, 2019, the insurance company sent this $3.8 million check. They said, don't pay that out. Don't give away the funds yet until an order approving the settlement had been filed at the Hampton County Probate Court. What does that uh, mean to this whole situation? Well, you have to have action and an order approving it. So what this lawsuit is saying is, hey, none of none of the way the money was handled was proper. None of the funds are going to be distributed until we have a court order saying exactly where the money went. And so maybe to, maybe to Moss Fleming's defense, Maybe that that money's just been sitting in their trust account, um, and yeah, what that gotcha. that's to be determined. Maybe. Thanks, John Snyder. All right, you guys have a great day. Talk to you later. So, I also wanted to talk about there was an interview on Fox News Carolina with Cody Alcorn, and they interviewed one of Alec Murdoch's attorney Griffin. And the first thing that they talk about is Maggie and Paul's death. That. They confirm that Alec is a person of interest of that. Now, he does kind of say he he doesn't believe that he did this crime and that if he had killed Maggie and Paul, that SLED would have found evidence. But he doesn't really go into whether someone else could have committed this crime on his behalf. Also talk about some more information about where he was at the time of death of Maggie and Paul. He was with his mother who was suffering from dementia and a caregiver, and they were watching a television show. He also is describing Maggie and Paul's marriage as strong. You know, we've seen multiple reports in different directions. Um, he does say Maggie has been spending a lot of time in the spring in Edisto because she was renovating their house, but he has phone evidence from Alex's phone saying that they texted every night and that they're, you know, were in a loving marriage. I want to point out that Edisto is... I guess we call it the beach house of one of the Murdoch properties. So she was not with Alec because Alec was staying in Hampton in the Hampton area, probably at the hunting lodge or maybe the family river house. So that's important to point out that she, if people saw her on a show alone by herself, that's what he's re- referencing. Right. He also 
talks about his opioid addiction, said that he had been in the past to a detox center, but he did was not forthright with his coworkers about this. He would tell them that he was on vacation or something along those lines. So it wasn't like a 28-day thing or something? He said no, it was it's a- just like a week-long okay. detox program that he had done before. Um, he does kind of leave the door open about his connections with this alleged 20-year opioid addiction that maybe he was had some contacts with some nefarious type people right. and that that should be looked into. There's going to be a part two of that interview. And I'm hoping during that part two, they kind of talk a little bit about the medical records and his lack of lack of injury that we could see during the bond hearing. Right. There's not even a Band-Aid or anything like that. Yes. So they could they'll reference that. And so, but the day before Corey did this interview for Fox News Carolina, he also did an interview with um, Sandy Smith, whose son, Stephen Smith, was found dead in Hampton in 2015. And she was contacted by a woman, Suzanne Andrews, who really wanted help because he didn't have a gravestone. So she set up this Facebook page called Standing for Stephen, and they're doing an event on October 30th to help raise money for Stephen. And I believe also that they didn't have enough money. Stephen's father died shortly after Stephen. So they want to raise enough money to get headstones for both of them. And they're doing this event in Columbia on October 30th. So if you're local, I would encourage you to attend. But if you're not, there is a GoFundMe page. You can find them on Standing for Stephen. And we also have a link on our podcast, which is Murdoch Podcast. Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, MurdochPodcast.com, but Murdoch podcast Facebook page is a great place also to get in touch with us if you have questions, etc. And uh, rate and share and five stars would be nice. And again, it's all about getting justice for all those people who have suffered. I'm Matt Harris. She's Seton Tucker. We will talk soon. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.